one time. In my case, it was uh, a high school history teacher, uh, kind, of, kind of a feminine kind of academic kind of uh, uh, raucous in terms of humor and things like that. <laughs> And uh, he made history come alive for me. He was like telling a story. And uh, so I would say Mr. Nunn, I still remember his name. I don't remember many of my teacher's names, but uh -huh. Mr. Nunn uh, inspired me that history was a story. It was, not a, it was not so much an academic discipline. It was a story that needed to be told. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've... I've uh, been his acolyte ever since because, uh, to me, history is best done by storytelling. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. The influence of teachers is definitely second to none for everybody going up through, and I feel like that's been a, a common core that we've heard from our different guests, so very cool. Okay, so as a fourth-generation Alabamian, what drew you away from your home state to pursue your master's and doctoral degrees? I was open to going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, uh, we had lived um, a sort of a migratory life. Mm -hmm. uh, I lived in eight different places growing up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Went to a whole bunch of schools, was never mm -hmm. any place longer than a year or two. Mm, yeah. And so <clears throat> uh, I was not afraid of new places because we lived in Atlanta three twice. We lived in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, we lived in Dothan, we lived in Sheffield, we lived in Anniston, we lived in Birmingham, we lived all over. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and if you're not only a child, of course, that's kind of solitary life. Right, so right. So it turns you inward, not outward. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so uh, I read a lot, and we didn't have a lot of books. We had a set of Compton encyclopedias, and oh. beyond that, uh, my dad would buy whatever I wanted, and I became fascinated with the Civil War, mm -hmm. not unusual for a male in the South in the <laughs> 1940s and 50s. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at first it was like the celebration of your courageous people. Uh, right. They might have lost, but you know, they were good people. Mm -hmm. and, uh, gradually then you mature and, and you, you uh, move beyond that kind of narrow perception mm -hmm. of history. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense for sure. Uh, but an awful lot of awful lot of my interest in history was an interest in my own family. Oh yeah, and a lot of people start there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's about family history and your own history, and yeah. wondering why you're the way you are, and right. And so uh, it was a very personal kind of excursion yeah. into oh, that very world. Cool. Very cool. Nice. What led you to teach at Auburn University? Did you always envision spending your career in the classroom or academia as a whole? Uh, actually, it's a, it was uh, an evolutionary process. Uh, I wanted to be a Baptist minister. I was ordained as a Baptist minister. I preached in Baptist churches. Wow. And uh, so I had no idea when I went to college that I was going to be a, a, a teacher. Oh, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, quite the opposite. I was convinced that history was a great major to become a minister. Ah. And so I had basically a, almost a double major in religion and well, I actually almost had a triple major in speech, <laughs> uh, religion, and history. Ah. And uh, it's a really important thing for young people to know, which is that uh, very seldom is your life experience determined by one decision. Mm. 
it's usually determined by process. Oh, yeah. And you, you, you know exactly what you're going to do, and then all of a sudden something grabs you mm. and it takes hold of you. And at that point, you become much more confused initially. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then gradually you begin to emerge. And I used to tell uh, students at Auburn, uh, don't be afraid of that, of that journey outside where you thought you would be in oh, life. Yeah. Because oftentimes, uh, in fact, I say most times, you never learn anything that's wasted. Mm. And so my interest in religion has been with me to the point where I've written numerous books. Yeah, I wrote the authoritative authorized history of Alabama Baptist, for instance. Yeah. I wrote a book called, uh, uh, well, it was, it was about uh, Southern religion uh, in the entire region. And so, in a sense, I'm going back. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's never wasted. Nothing <laughs> you learn is ever wasted. That's really cool. So neat. And I really like how you're talking about it being a process and a series of decisions rather than just like one thing that all the pressure has to go on to. So I feel like that that's a comforting thought to know that it's all all part of the process and getting you where you're supposed to go. Especially for undergraduates at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> flounder a bit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So many so many different directions to go. That makes it's sense. It's interesting to re remember that there's a whole sea full of flounderers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Including most of your professors. Oh. <laughs> okay. So moving towards your uh, teaching career, did you have a favorite part of teaching or a favorite class or anything like that that you especially enjoyed? Uh, every class is a different challenge. Mm. <laughs> uh, for instance, uh, when I was department chair, I decided that if, if, I, were, if I had to have professors in the department, teaching classes of two to 400 students. Oh, yeah. Most of whom hated history and did not mm -hmm. want to be in the class. Mm -hmm. That it was sort of uh, a chicken if I didn't teach one of those classes. Oh, yeah. Because I wanted to be able to tell the professors, I understand your problem. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't understand the problem if it's theoretical. Right. You, only you only understand the problem if you've had the problem personally. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of my problems is I'm not really great at remembering names. Ah. <laughs> and if you have 200 to 400 students and two to three graduate student mm -hmm. uh, assistants in the class, it's very easy to, to dehumanize. It's just a big bunch of people. And you come in and you lecture and you're gone. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was determined to do something about that. So... Uh, one of the things I discovered is there are a lot of things at Auburn and in the university you can't change. Oh, yeah. Big classes mm. in freshman courses. Mm -hmm. It's axiomatic. It's going to happen. But what you can do is to try to tell your GTAs, I can't learn everybody's name, but you can learn everybody's name. Right. Or you can learn a segment of everybody's yeah. name. Yeah. So if, you don't, if you're like me and you have memory problems, I would tell my GTAs, uh, we'll divide the class into three parts. I'll take 50, you take 50, you take 50, and 150, and you'll learn yours, and I'll learn mine, and they'll feel like they're connected to us, yeah. one of the three of us. Uh, but I did feel that as department head, I absolutely had to teach that class, mm -hmm. because if I didn't, 
it was going to be every time I called a faculty member in who was having problems in terms mm -hmm. of student evaluations of the big classes, mm -hmm. might do fine on the small classes, the upper level classes, but not the big class. Mm -hmm. And every time I, ca I called them in to talk to them, it would be a response in their mind, probably not in their mouth, uh, which went along the lines, well, of course you don't understand. You've never right. done it. Right. If you've done it, you wouldn't wonder right. why I have problems with, yeah, with yeah. student evaluation. Right, right. And I said, well, you know, I, I taught that same class that I didn't have a problem with student evaluations, and if students really want to hack on somebody, it's definitely going to be the department chair, mm -hmm. right? I, I pick on a, a, a young professor, pick on the department head, and yeah. tell him he's no good. Why don't you stay... <laughs> Why don't you get out of teaching? Oh no! Come an autumn again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aw, that's very cool. A great story, yeah. And it's been neat when we've had the different professors that are currently teaching here at Auburn. A lot of the history ones have said that they've felt like those big classes have been a special opportunity to, you know, try and connect history to the people that wouldn't be pursuing it otherwise. So that's been neat. And to hear your perspective on it, too, of it's important to put an effort in in those big classes as well. Is I might great. add, it was great recruiting, too. Oh, because yeah. I can't tell you how many students came here. Uh, thinking they were going to be engineers mm -hmm. and suddenly discovered <laughs> they might want to be engineers, but they really didn't have the oh, knowledge. Yeah. You know, they just weren't that good at it. Right. And uh, so history can be, for many students at Auburn, a fallback position. Yeah. Uh, they take it. They have a, uh, an enthusiastic, charismatic teacher, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they give up the engineering oh, yeah. and become very happy as historians. So yeah, yeah. You don't make as much, but <laughs> you're happy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the most important thing. Cool. Um, one last question before the break. What is something that you learned from your time as president of the Southern Historical Association? That professional historians can be about as uh, arrogant Oh no! <laughs> Intolerant, <laughs> uh, judgmental. Uh, you know, there's always somebody saying, "Well, why don't you do it this way? It would be so much better this way." So you've got the mm -hmm. criticism, critique, right, uh, right, and then you've got the critique of people who have always wanted to be head of it. Oh yeah. Well, the one person you don't want to be president of the Alabama of the American of the Southern Historical Association is somebody who's spent their whole time politicking to become oh, it. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, like any other position in life you have, it is a servant position if you understand it properly. Mm -hmm. You're there to do something for your profession. Or you're there to think of new ways to present history. Right. And so if you crave it you mm -hmm. probably shouldn't have it. Oh, yeah. You should probably be running from it mm. and pushed into taking it. Yeah. Because basically, like most positions uh, that have a title to them, and especially presidents of, it, it's, it's a servant mm. role mm -hmm. if you understand it properly. It's where you're trying to help your profession. Right. Uh, and in some cases, it's... Uh, it's an advocacy kind of relationship. There mm. are all sorts of universities that were in the process of saying, well, why do people need to know history? Mm. So why does it have to be required? Right. If you're an engineer, why do you need history? Right. Well, believe it or not, engineering has a history. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you don't understand the history of engineering, you won't be as good as an engineer if you understand yeah. that. That makes sense. Also, 
you will never occupy a place in life where the only thing you are is an, is a, is an engineer. Oh, yeah. If you don't understand the historical context of engineering, mm -hmm. and you don't understand why professionalism developed as it did in these little cubby holes, yeah. uh, then you will never be able to integrate yourself in a fully human kind of way to other yeah. people. You'll always say, well, the best profession in the world is engineering. <laughs> well, except that everybody else who does anything else will think that's not true, right. that theirs is. The, yeah, and, yeah. And the truth of the matter is, it's more a combination of all the wonderful knowledge mm. bases. Yeah. That's great. It is not the eccentricity and the arrogance of one particular right. <laughs> school of thought or professional development. Mm. Uh, there was some of that, that good-natured stuff that went on at Auburn, you know. Well, yeah. uh, you may be a history major, but, you know, if you really were smart, you would be an engineer. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, Maybe it wasn't quite as articulated as that. Right. There was a there, you know, in a land grant university, there is a tradition of land grant kind of programs. Mm, yeah. And so the University of Alabama makes fun of Auburn, you know, by, by singing, uh, "Oh, McDonald had a farm, yeah, yeah, and on the <laughs> farm they had a cow, yeah, yeah." And of course, we respond to that by you know talking about this, the uh, uh, disconnection between University of Alabama students and the real world in which many, many people live. You know, like, uh, you really may not need farmers, but every now and then you do like to eat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or uh, all those trees that you see growing in those forests actually have a, a functional and economic meaning to those people who are growing Yeah, those yeah, trees. that makes sense. So, you know, it's nice to be humble, mm -hmm. and I think land-grant universities make you humble better than big state universities. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very cool. <laughs> yeah, very cool. We're going to head to our first ad break, but we'll see you right after the break. Good morning, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. This morning, Sophia and I are joined by Dr. Flint, and he is a director emeritus of the history department here at Auburn. So, Dr. Flint's most recent book is entitled Afternoons with Harper Lee, and is his second book on the late American author, who was a longtime friend of Dr. Flint and his wife. Dr. Flint's book was published just over a year ago and discusses stories he gathered during the later years of his 12-year friendship with Harper Lee, following his earlier work, Mockingbird Songs, My Friendship with Harper Lee. So, to start this conversation, how did you and Harper Lee become friends? Uh, most unlikely way. She was... Uh... She was not a recluse, which is one word people use to describe her. Uh -huh. uh, but she was uh, intensely private. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily, I was married to a woman just like Harper Lee. <laughs> uh, intensely private, mm -hmm. but very social. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, in fact, she was theater major. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> but she didn't want to be on a stage. She wanted to do makeup and oh, yeah. design and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that fits a personality like that. Yeah. There's nothing that, that fits a, a personality of a person who wants to be private better than writing. Mm, yeah. If you, if you just decide backwards, mm -hmm. instead of just deciding on a vocation, you decide on a personality. Oh, yeah. And your personality is private. Mm -hmm. Writing is your cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to be interrupted. <laughs> uh, uh, my wife died on February 11, 2020, and I spent 18 months during the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, 
writing. No, oh, wow. 18 months by yourself writing. Yeah. Which, given the fact that I'm a very social animal, unlike my wife, mm-hmm. uh, is kind of a challenge. Oh, yeah. You know, it can be very disconcerting. Mm-hmm. So I would say people who become writers are by nature kind of private people. Yeah. Who enjoy being by themselves mm-hmm. and, and and creating out of their own imagination, not reading books, unlike hist- historians. You know, <laughs> they, they have to be socialized, but writers don't have to be socialized. Mm-hmm. So that was her personality type. Yeah. Uh, her siblings, there were three siblings, and they weren't like, weren't like that at all. Wow. Uh, uh, she was the youngest of the four. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I decided she didn't much like the University of Alabama, which is understandable for anybody from Auburn, why you wouldn't understand like I mean, she was an Alabama person who left Alabama without a degree and went to New York City because she wanted to write. Oh, yeah. She did write for the Crimson and White, which mm-hmm. was a student newspaper, but they were kind of uproarious and oh. out of center, kind of the kind of things that would make people mad, mm-hmm. especially when you mock the most famous professor at the university who was supposed to be this super Shakespeare scholar. And she thought he was just a complete jerk and wrote that in the Crimson and White, which, you know, uh, you're probably going to leave a school a little earlier than you planned. (laughs) Uh, So she goes to New York City because her best friend from childhood, Truman Capote, had gone to New York City. And he said, Nell, forget Alabama. Get out of Alabama. You're not going to be a writer and be in Alabama, which is crazy (laughs) since we've had a lot of great writers who stayed here. But she went to New York City, and she never wanted to be anyplace else. Mm. She never wanted to be in Alabama again. She never wanted to be in Turkey or even Britain, which she loved, Great Britain, Mm. she loved. She was an Anglophile. But she only wanted to be in New York City. Wow. Uh, It was only because of a stroke. Oh. And the fact that uh, after three weeks at Mount Sunia Hospital, their insurance ran out. Mm. And uh, she was for about uh, 10 hours. She had the stroke early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- her friends came for lunch that day. So she had oh, wow. been lying there Wow. for nearly an entire day. Well, wow. that's not good for a stroke. You need yeah. to, yeah, it's quick. Mm-hmm. And to be discovered quick. And usually there's somebody in around, a, yeah. a wife or a child or something, but mm-hmm. nobody for her. Wow. So uh, it was a very severe stroke. She mm-hmm. was transferred to Lakeshore Rehab in Birmingham mm. under a fake name. Oh, wow. And it is one of the great tributes to the University of Alabama medical system that she was there six months and nobody ever found out who she was except her nurses. Yeah, that is impressive. And her doctors. Wow. I think they were probably uh, told under under terms of being dismissed oh. if 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 they did reveal her presence. But mm-hmm. I got a call from an attorney, uh, mm-hmm. the most prominent attorney in Birmingham. Uh, he said uh, we had met her and we were good friends with her two sisters. And uh, they were very, very interested in Alabama history and lovely people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, because she didn't have anyone, she had been gone for so long. Right. Uh, they asked my wife and me if we would visit her occasionally, which we did, mm-hmm. uh, asking for the person under the assumed name. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife uh, found out that they would not allow her to eat chocolate and oh. immediately made a chocolate cake for her, <laughs> uh, which she absolutely went crazy over. <laughs> and so for six months, Darty would smuggle in chocolate. Oh. And uh, 
On one occasion, we actually took her out to dinner toward mm-hmm. the end in her wheelchair, and nobody recognized her because we went at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to mm-hmm. this fancy restaurant where there was nobody there. It's oh, yeah. It was and cook. And uh, so we gradually began to uh, mm-hmm. become acquainted with her. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, I have a sense of humor which leans toward the repulsive, you know, where you insult people. <laughs> and so in treating, instead of treating her like a marble lady, I just treated her like a, a old woman from oh. Monroe. <laughs> I said, well, you've just, gotten, you've just gotten ornery in your old age. You really didn't mean that now. And, uh, <laughs> so we, uh, we developed this really wonderful. I mean, I was not intimidated by her. Mm, yeah. And she was definitely not intimidated by anybody <laughs> uh, whatsoever. And we just we just sort of fell in love. Oh, I just loved her. Very and cool. She was, uh, she, you know, uh, she's not that far from my generation. Oh she's yeah. A couple a couple of decades older than I was, mm-hmm. and that made her like a mother figure, telling me what I ought oh, to be yeah. doing. And, and I used to pretend that I was a teenage boy telling mother I really didn't think that she should tell me what I ought to do in my life. <laughs> this kind of relationship. Yeah. So, yeah oh. was, and then when she was shift uh, when she finally was able to go mm-hmm. uh, so out of uh, rehab. It, it was not going to make any difference. She was never going to walk again. Oh, wow, yeah. And then the question is, do you want to be someone who can't walk again in New York City um. where you want to live or in Monroeville where you never wanted to live? Mm. You never wanted to go home again. Yeah. She did go home again. Mm. And as in rehab, she had a fake name on the door. Oh, wow. And... and when word began to circulate that she was there, of course, you know, there was all the problem of people trying to get in to see her, reporters, and and uh, when the second book, uh, Ghost of the Watchman, was published, it was just a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, all over the world, people were coming to hear the wow. the most beloved author in the world. Yeah. Uh, and she still is. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, it was oh. quite, a, quite, quite a friendship. Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing story. Uh, 64 afternoons we visited wow. her. Aww. And uh, every afternoon I tried to make it into a, a storytelling. Yeah. I didn't ask her anything about her background or anything that would have been personal. Right. I just let her tell us what she wanted to tell us. Yeah. Oh, that's really neat. Really neat. How is writing something like Afternoons with Harper Lee different from your more traditional history work? That's a great question because uh, someone introduced me at Abingdon, Virginia, at the Barter Theater uh, the day before yesterday, as having written a biography. Mm. Well, it's not a biography. Right. Mm-hmm. A biography is a total story uh, where you have to tell the parts of a person's life that you you don't feel you can tell mm. that they're very private to the mm-hmm. to the to you and to her. Right. And and I didn't want to do that. And so what we invited her to do was tell us stories. Her first book, uh, Mockingbird's Songs, is a book of letters that we wrote when she was independent living in New York before the stroke Mm -hmm. and where she was concerned about, since she's the youngest child, she's concerned about uh, the growing memory problems of her second sister. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's concerned about the um, uh, aging of her uh, senior sister who was still practicing law at 100 years old. Oh, wow. And didn't die until she was 103. And obviously, oh. Nell is interested in what's going on with Alice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and 
so to some degree, we're her contact in Alabama mm-hmm. when she's not coming home. Mm-hmm. And so we write letters back and forth. Yeah. And so the first book is basically our correspondence with mm-hmm. a little background. Second book, very different because you're face to face with her. Mm-hmm. And as in any kind of Southern conversation, uh, you start talking about your ancestors. Uh, you start talking about growing up. Yeah. You start talking about Truman Capote, <laughs> your best friend, and what he was like. Mm-hmm. And he was so crazy. I mean, you know, what could explain somebody like that? This leprechaunish kind of brilliant writer. Yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden you realize, my wife realized, I should say, are you writing all this down? <laughs> And I said, well, no, I'm not going to take a notebook and write. Well, she, no, she said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. When you get home, are you writing this down? Yeah. I said, gosh, I didn't never thought of that. Mm, yeah. And she said, well, think of that. <laughs> like, think of that, you fool. Yeah. Write this down. So we actually had three journals oh. of 64 afternoons mm-hmm. of conversations where I would, we would, we never stayed overnight, so we would drive back to Auburn, and the first thing I'd do is get out the journal, and I would record everything I could remember, and my wife would then add to it more than I could remember because she was not talking all the time. Oh she yeah, was, she's, she's listening, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so it's really as much her work as it is my work. Oh yeah, and we had about three hundred pages mm-hmm. of journal notes. And I had promised her I would never write about her in her lifetime, oh, and yeah. I never did. Mm-hmm. But uh, I figured the world has a right to know the real woman. Yeah. Uh, and what I argue is she's not reclusive. She's not weird. Mm-hmm. She's not a marble lady. Yeah. She is an authentic Southern woman. Yeah. And if you've known an authentic Southern woman, you know they came in all sorts of <laughs> conditions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the ones who drink a little too much and the ones who talk a little too much. And the ones who are never talk at all. <laughs> and, and so uh, she never felt any compulsion to be something other than what she was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she was not like her mother. She was not like her father. She was not like her, her two sisters. Mm. She was authentic. Yeah. And I just felt like the world needed to know. Yeah. And the best way to do that is let her tell stories. Right, right. Oh, that's so so cool and so fascinating, too, because I was going to ask about writing the stories down and everything, too. So neat that you just had the conversation drive itself when you're with Harper Lee, but then afterwards recording everything from that. Really neat. Yeah. And so it's, uh, to some degree, a memory thing. Mm-hmm. It's a memory thing for her, and it's a memory thing plus an interpretation because right. I was watching her face. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was listening to, you know, when she was furring her brow and trying to remember something, and I was not sure she got it right, and mm. I'd have to go back and fact check it. Oh, yeah. Or <laughs> book. Uh, and I was trying to make it as accurate as I could and mm-hmm. yet, let, yet it be free-flowing where she was right. where she was storytelling. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you think about a writer, what is, what is To Kill a Mockingbird except the most beloved story yeah. ever told yeah. in the history of literature? Mm-hmm. Uh, Australia had a contest uh, a couple of years ago to determine the most beloved American novel mm-hmm. by Australian readers, oh. To Kill a Mockingbird. Wow, yeah. Uh, there contest after contest, mm-hmm. program after program, to determine the greatest this and the greatest that. Uh, uh, there was a six-month contest 
by national public television mm. to determine the most beloved novel of the of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, it went for it went on for six week uh, six six weeks six months six months, and every single day, mm-hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird was number one. Wow! Wow! From just the, that audience of mm. people who watch public television. Uh, there was a contest with the New York Times book review section last year, year before last, and uh, it was the 125th anniversary of the book review section of the New York Times, and they asked all of their readers from all over the world to name the number one book published in the last 125 years mm. that they had read, and by a landslide the, from People in 69 different countries, mm-hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird was number one. Wow, wow. So any way you look at it, there is an enormous irony here. Yeah. A woman, not only from Alabama. <laughs> that's weird enough. Whatever good ever came from Alabama except football, right? <laughs> uh, but even more remarkable than that, a town with 10,000 people. Oh, yeah. The most parochial place in the world. Mm produces the most beloved author yeah. in the world. Yeah, that's amazing. That's, I mean, you know, you can be embarrassed by Alabama a lot, but sometimes you just have to say, well, too bad you can't live in Alabama. I'm sorry <laughs> for you. <laughs> but yeah. maybe, maybe someday you'll hit the big pot and you can move to Alabama. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's, that's really neat. Oh. Do yeah. you think that Harper Lee ever, like, you know, hinted at anything about why she thought that her her book made it that big or do you think that she was always like you know in disbelief of that fact that's a terrific question and i'll i'll answer it two ways one is what she always said Mm -hmm. which is perhaps believable given where she came from and given the fact that she was always in the shadow until the mid-1960s and Mm -hmm. his death of Truman Capote, Mm -hmm. one of the most lyrical writers uh, in American literature and also one of the most social people, you know, his group of swines, his women friends Mm -hmm. and all that he cultivated. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in the presence of Truman Capote, it's really interesting to see somebody that's so introspective when he's so external. Right, right. And uh, uh, I, I would say that Nell was probably the most authentic person I've ever known. Mm. And by that, I mean she would insult me in a minute and just delight in it. <laughs> uh, she'd say, well, Wayne, you're much too smart for that. And when I would say uh, to her after one of these new awards she had won mm-hmm. or new kind of contests that had established her as the most popular writer in the world, <laughs> uh, she had one sentence that repeat that she repeated so often that it was just her mantra. Mm. All I ever did, Wayne, was to write a book. Mm. And there's a sadness to that. Oh, yeah. Because if you can imagine the most private person you've ever known in your life suddenly being opened oh. to a world where everybody who read that book thought, what was she like? Oh, yeah. What was she like? Yeah. Uh, more than anything, I think, in the world, readers want to know what exactly she was like. 
Yeah. And what I'm trying to do is let her tell them that right. through her stories. Right, that makes sense. I don't need to tell them. I don't want to write a biography. Yeah. This is not a biography. Mm-hmm. This is letting her tell her own story. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. We're going to go into our next ad break, but we'll see you right after the break. Hi, I'm Matt Kenseth. You don't have to be a race car driver to know that life can be full of drama. Some of it you can't control, like mechanical issues, high winds, and rain delays. But there's some drama you can skip. Skip the drama that comes with not having your high school diploma or equivalency. Find free adult education classes near you and finish your diploma. Visit finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. You just need to take that first step and find free classes near you and leave the drama for the racetrack. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ed Council. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Attention men under the age of 35. You know what really impresses the ladies? When a guy has a few drinks and later gets pulled over for buzz driving. That could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. There goes let's grab dinner and a movie. Oh, I know. You drive more carefully when you're buzzed. You've proven that hundreds of times. A woman admires that kind of confidence. And you've practiced how to speak if a cop does pull you over. Slowly, clearly, and politely like, good evening, officer. A woman admires that kind of foresight. And what woman doesn't find it adorable that you call it buzzed even though the law calls it drunk? You could kiss $10,000 goodbye, along with any chance of having a girlfriend. Because nothing says, I'm a catch, more than a guy who lives in his parents' basement and calls it my place. Buzzed, busted, and broke. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. If you're just joining us, we're joined with Dr. Flint, who is largely regarded as one of the preeminent scholars of Alabama history. In addition to authoring 14 of his own books centered around Alabama's history, Dr. Flint has also served as the editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia of Alabama. As we mentioned at the top, he was part of the writing process for two different Alabama-related Pulitzer-nominated history books. What period interests you most in Alabama's history? Uh, I had to say the period from uh, uh, certainly the 20th century. Mm. Uh, the 21st century is too recent to even have a history. <laughs> uh, the ancient period, uh, I call it the ancient period because that's where people settle down if they're interested in genealogy and oh, yeah. civil war and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, um, I mean, it's not that I don't, I don't disparage those. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're important to the making of the state. It's just I'm not interested in that. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm a, uh, from my doctoral work at Florida State on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm interested in something more recent than that. Yeah, yeah. Problem is, uh, I've lived long enough now at 83 to see the world that I first became interested in, which was Alabama in the 20th century, which meant to the 1950s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, expand somewhat beyond. Oh yeah, that. yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> it's, 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 it's 
And it's much more complicated because mm. history is not static. It's right. moving. And uh, just to give you an idea, think about what uh, Alabama attitudes about race would have been mm. uh, in the 19th century mm-hmm. or even the 20th century, and now what they're like in the 21st century. Think of what feminism is like, yeah. women's roles in those different periods. Mm-hmm. And so if you plop down as an historian in one place and say, oh, I kind of like this, well, you're really telling us more about yourself than oh. you're telling us about the historical period. Hmm, that's interesting. So the question really is, can you transcend whatever you are, whatever right. your interests are, and go to a period where you're, the, this drama is being presented on a stage a lot bigger than your stage, mm. and you've got to enca- encapsulate all of that. Yeah. So um, from the very beginning, I was more interested in recent Alabama history. But recent Alabama history, when I was 20, oh, yeah. <laughs> is, is ancient Alabama oh, history. No, <laughs> no. Pretty close to it. Uh, the, the, and obviously, if you think about race, and you think about uh, how many really prominent African Americans. In fact, I make the argument in, in, in um, Alabama in the 20th century that if you are interested in sports, Alabama is really the most important state in the Union. Hmm. Now, if you're interested in finance, go to New York. But if you're interested yeah. in sport, go to, go to Alabama. Yeah. And if you think about uh, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Satchel Paige, Jesse Owens mm. in track and field. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, you know, Bo Jackson and, and one or two Alabama players who were fairly good. Uh, <laughs> not as good as the Auburn players, obviously, but, but uh, <laughs> yeah. pretty good. And if you put all that together and you take women and men, mm-hmm. uh, there's no doubt that I could write a book strictly about sport in America and say, th- we are number one. Mm-hmm. There yeah. is no place. Uh, University of Alabama, I regret to say, has dominated football yeah, yeah. for a long time. <laughs> and not just in recent years, in the 1920s, they were the dominant team in America, mm-hmm. in American football. And so my argument is, an historian does not superimpose the historian's notion about what makes a place great. Right. You don't go and say, well, unless you grow the best turnips in America, <laughs> you're really not important. Right. What you do is you let people define that. Mm, yeah. And if you let that flow from what people are, uh, I think you could make a good good case for the state. Yeah. For the fact that Alabama is in sport the most important place mm. in, in America. Yeah. Also, if you look at the flora and fauna, I mean, uh, it's not like we didn't have uh, one great uh, scientist at Harvard University who won two Pulitzer Prizes for writing about the flora and fauna of Alabama. Hmm. And his argument is, you know, you see uh, 24 varieties of oak trees in the Red Hills of South Alabama, which is more than any other variety of oak trees in the entire world. Oh, wow. So what was it like once upon a time when there were glaciers? What was it like when there was... Uh, do you realize that 10% of all the water in the United States flows through Mobile oh, wow. in South Alabama? Hmm. And uh, if you look at, say, the 22nd century, the 23rd century, the most important asset in the world is going to be water. Hmm. Who has yeah. water? Who controls the water? Right. Alabama controls the water. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For the entire North America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you begin to say, 
well, well, let me put it a different way. Alabama has the worst kind of, of uh, attitude about itself. Mm. Uh, it feels so put upon. It feels so rejected. It feels so sinful. It feels so backward. And I would say that what you need to do is, is sort of pull your shoulders back and say, hmm, where do you live? Oh, I live in New York. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> or, or I live in Washington State, where my where my kids live. And I say, too bad, too bad. <laughs> uh, uh, that is, we have such tremendous possibility. Mm. Also, uh, if there is one great dilemma that has been a great dilemma in America, mm-hmm. it's how very different people, like black people and white people, get along. Well, you will never solve that problem unless you have black people and white people living together. Right. And I would argue that if you would take any state in the union and see, give some date positive, start 1900, start 1800, it doesn't make any difference, start 1950, wherever. I would say that there's more movement mm-hmm. within that continuum yeah. of how people understand each other racially uh, than almost anywhere mm. in Alabama, because you have to confront it in Alabama. You don't right. have a choice. Right. <laughs> there are a lot of them, yeah. <laughs> whatever the them is. Mm. If you're black, it's a lot of them whites, and if you're white, it's a lot of them blacks, and you have to learn, you have to, learn uh, to get together. I, I, have a, I have a dear, dear friend. Uh, uh, he was uh, the academic vice president, or he was the vice president for academic affairs for the football program. He was an African-American from Hartsville, Alabama. Mm. Uh, he went. Uh, he was a scholarship athlete. He was the first white ever to play on the Hartsville team. Hartsville's up in the mountains. It's redneck country. Mm. Uh, people used to play football with him and then chase him home every Saturday night oh, wow. uh, because their thuggish friends didn't like him because he was black. Mm. He goes to a really wonderful uh, elite school to play football. He moves to Akron, Ohio. He marries a white woman who looks... Uh, Father is from North Carolina, and his racial attitude is appropriate, <laughs> being from North Carolina in the mountains. And uh, here in Auburn, Alabama, Donna and Virgil raised three biracial children, mm. one of whom is an anesthesiologist at UCA Me- UCLA Medical Center. Oh, wow. One is the head of the finest private school. She heads the counseling mm. in San Francisco, California. Wow. The third graduated from Auburn, uh, magna cum laude in software design engineering, and is a rapidly developing executive at Exxon Mobil in Houston, Texas. Wow. Uh, is that what you think of when you think of race? That is three beautiful biracial women. Uh, and I can remember the first time uh, after their father died of a heart attack at 46, mm-hmm. uh, taking the youngest of the three to the father-daughter cotillion at the Auburn Country Club. Yeah. And uh, there was one black person in the room, the 12-year-old I brought as her godfather. And I stood there in my tuxedo, and I watched a line of little white boys go to little white girls and ask to be listed on their dance program for the night. And the entire first set, my goddaughter sat there and in fury, oh. with smoke coming out of her oh, ears, no. uh, thinking, no, and she came over to me in my tux, and she said, obviously no one's going to dance with me. Will you dance with me? My wife and I did ballroom dancing, and we had taken 
lots of time to teach her how to dance, everything. Mm. She's particularly like rumba. <laughs> and uh, she said, the first dance in the second set is going to be a rumba. Will you do the rumba with me since nobody's going to dance with me? So I was the only papa who <laughs> danced with his daughter. And she did a rumba. And there's one step where I spin her and she goes out. And she dances by herself, essentially. And mm -hmm. then she turns when she wants to, and I pick her up again. I didn't think she was going to ever come back. <laughs> she danced away from me, and she did every step in rumba, uh, those steps going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then she came over, and we finished the dance, and I went and sat down. And there's a line of little white boys lining up in front of her, and she danced every single dance in the second set. Uh, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how... Life can disassociate you from the world from which you come mm. because you never even had even thought about a little girl who could dance like that until you saw it, oh, yeah. and then everything changed. Mm. Not for the not for the fathers standing around the back, but for the boys, mm. the little white boys. Everything changed. Mm. So you know, I'm I'm a great believer in generational change, and I'm a yeah. great believer in the future of Alabama because Alabama is not going to be like Alabama is. No, yeah. It's always changing. Yeah. Um, Historians know nothing's <laughs> the same. That's right. That's right. Oh, important lesson for sure. Okay. So moving more to one of your books, in Alabama, the history of Deep South State, you offer a comprehensive history of the state from its founding to the present as of the publishing of the book. Uh, what were some of the challenges that came with researching a history as broad as that? A well, great question, uh, because my preference for writing is I write. Mm -hmm. I do the research. I'm a per completely accountable. If there's a mistake, it's obviously my mistake. Right. History of a Deep South State, when you're going all the way back to the Indian period, you're mm -hmm. obviously going a long way back, and mm -hmm. that's out of my purview. <laughs> so there were actually four of us who, oh, were, wow. who worked on that book. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened one of them was my major professor at Florida State, oh. who was from Alabama. Yeah. Uh, another one was his best friend, who was also from Alabama, but mm -hmm. taught in Georgia. And the third was Lee Atkins, uh, a dear friend of mine who uh, went to Auburn and and was here and headed the Humanities Center mm. before the wonderful job Mark Wilson's doing. <laughs> and uh, the consequence of that is we could specialize. I know a lot about the 20th century, but darn little about the earlier period. Oh, yeah. And so each one of us had a speciality. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit awkward because your style of writing is different, but uh, we tried to edit the whole thing after the end to make it as seamless as we could. Right. So um, I... There's something really important about understanding. You don't know any, everything. Mm, yeah. Uh, and when you are working with other people who are really good in their fields, that's that's a great experience mm -hmm. because it's a collective experience. Yeah. Uh, I There's some things I don't like about it because you're a slave to the slowest person mm -hmm. or the laziest person or somebody who's got really awkward kind of, of wording of something. So you have to have a central editor who goes back through and cleans the thing up. But uh, what I loved about it was, to some degree, you just need to read that book because you need to know where we came from. Right. And it's the only book that really tells you in depth where mm. we came from. Yeah. And 
So I'm really, really proud of that, even yeah. though I had a very small part in it, only a, only a fourth of, my, of the book is my work. <laughs> but on the other hand, I think from the 1920s forward, I understand Alabama really well because I've spent my whole life uh, yeah. looking at every place mm-hmm. in America from 1920 on. Uh, yeah. So that was the great advantage of it. Yeah, that's awesome. And the great disadvantage of it is you have to have somebody who's the final arbiter of the of the uh, style, mm. and they'll go back and change. You know, uh, they'll change. If, if you just want to say everything is in the past tense, they're going to change it to uh, something else. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. Oh, sure. All right. So now we'll move into our trivia section of the show. So we always like to see if we can come up with two different trivia questions to ask our guests uh, the, to wrap up. So first, the town of Enterprise, Alabama, has a monument to something that made life difficult for local farmers. What was it? you talking about a bull bug? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Well... Uh, a little bug came and ate up the cotton. Yeah. And the result of that is Alabama had to confront a moral dilemma, which is mm-hmm. everybody's growing cotton, and mm-hmm. that's what's selling. And then all of a sudden you're getting the cotton eaten up. And so uh, maybe you ought to try to peanuts or you ought to try a, a, a cattle or something else. Uh, and when you're wedded by history, to one economy. Mm-hmm. It's not just the economy that's an issue here. So you have to sort of wipe out that economy to make people who know how to do that but don't know how to do peanuts. Right, right. And so what you what you what you have here is history forcing you mm. to change history. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Because what is happening in the immediate is forcing you to have to change what happened in the past. Right, right. History is mean. <laughs> history is unforgiving. Mm. History slaps you down. Yeah. And then history gives you a chance to be something else than what you were. Mm. That is a profound moral lesson. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, those who do well in life are those who can change. Mm, yeah. They, they can move on. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great lesson. All right, our next question is, in what year did Alabama gain statehood? Oh, golly. <laughs> I'm a recent Alabama historian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 18-something, uh, I don't know. Uh, as I said, the part of the book I wrote was the part that... that <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, that's fair, that's fair. Uh, it, was, it was in the early 19th century. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because uh, we were actually a, a pretty much frontier. Mm. And so um, we don't think of ourselves that way. Mm-hmm. But we ought to think of ourselves that way. Yeah. That... Uh, It helps you understand that all over Alabama, uh, as, as I was driving back and forth from, from Virginia this past week uh, for a series of lectures, it was interesting, the Cherokee names, mm. the creek names. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you still have a creek president right. in South Alabama. Uh, it's interesting that uh, on our way it was all Cherokee because we're going through the mountains. Mm-hmm. And so, um, to me... Alabama's 
not an ancient state. Yeah. Alabama's a fairly new state. Hmm. And uh, it's a new state born with cotton, by cotton. Yeah. Cotton gave it birth, the portamobile, mm -hmm. uh, which you know, gets 10% of the water in the United States. Uh, how do you ship things mm -hmm. in that period? You ship it by water. Well, where's the great market for cotton? England, mm -hmm. the mills in the Midlands in England. And so if you put all of that together, you come up with a date just by knowing the, the uh, history and topology of the state. And you know it's gonna be early 19th century because it's the cotton kingdom. Cotton dominates everything. Alabama dominates, dominates the uh, movement of products in and out. Mm -hmm. uh, mobiles, the preeminent port. Uh, you realize that when the Civil War began, 40% of the gross national product of the United States was based on the South and cotton. Mm -hmm. One product accommodated for 40% of the gross domestic product. 40% mm -hmm. of the loans made by New York City banks were in the South mm -hmm. to fund. Cotton Kingdom. Yeah. And so the birth of the state, uh, here is not so important as it is the context in which the state was born. Right. Uh, because if you think cotton is king, you have a certain kind of arrogance, right? Mm. And if you think your port is critical mm -hmm. in terms of shutting down U.S. commerce and U.S. banking, then you have an arrogance that says, well, if we decide to secede, you can't do without us. Right. And so it makes you do foolish things, yeah. like 740,000 men died to prevent. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. All American men, yeah. yeah, just Southern and Northern men. Yeah, great point. All right, for some of our last questions of the hour that we like to ask, um, we're getting into our last questions of the hour that we like to ask all of our guests that come on to our show. And the first one is, why is it important that we study history? Because... You need to know where you came from in order to know where you're going. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Cool. Okay, so our last question of the morning. What advice do you have for current and future students of history? Uh, <clears throat> I would say uh, treat it gently, mm. like a lover. Mm. <laughs> uh, find the best part of it. And always remember there's a bad part of it. Right. Uh, don't assume that your partner is going to be perfect. Always allow some wiggle room mm. for humanity, for right. being right. human, not, not divine. Uh, always dream that uh, the world your children or grandchildren will inherit, it will be better than the one and more just than the one that you inherit. Yeah, yeah. And make sure that you do your part in making sure that comes true. Mm. That's great advice. Yeah. And a great great way to end an awesome hour. Thank you so much. Yeah. So to wrap up our final thank yous, thank you, of course, to Dr. Wayne Flint for joining us this morning. We learned a lot from you and are so grateful to get to have the opportunity to meet you. Thank you to Dr. Mark Wilson and Miss Carol Jakeman for uh, connecting us to Dr. Flint and for being able to sit in on our hour as well. It was great to get to meet both of you. Thank you to the History Department and Dr. Schultz, which is our faculty advisor for the History Club. Thank you to him. 
Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts for their support and, of course, our researcher, Colby, who helps us put together our questions every week. Thank you to Weagle for, of course, hosting us every, every week for our radio hour, giving us the airtime. And thank you to our listeners for their support and for listening to the podcast that we put together and the radio hour, of course, here as well, live. So, yeah, we'll see you next week. Thank you all so much. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time. <laughs>